Hey friend, thanks so much for stopping by for some community time around the fire pit. I've got some Tennessee white oak going. I'm going to run inside and get us both a cup of joe. Well, you're listening to Rocks, God the World and Other Things. I'm Kenny Price, your host. Our mission, you got it, advancing equilibrium in the midst of an agitated world. This is Season 10, Episode 217, titled, Hear What the Supreme Court Said. Subtitle, Listen to What the Supreme Court Said. Let me say right up front that I'm basically reading the decision as it was written, minus all of the appeals to the different lawsuits that have been had throughout the ages regarding all of this. So in other words, all of the lawsuits have been extracted so that it reads as the document makes sense. This is October term, 2021, the syllabus Supreme Court of the United States, Dobbs, State Health Officer of the Mississippi Department of Health, et al. v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, et al. City Aurori, and that means a writ of superior court to call out the records of an inferior court or a body acting in a quasi-judicial capacity. So this is the City Aurori to the United States of Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Argued December 1st, 2021, decided June 24th, 2022. Mississippi's Gestational Age Act provides that except in a medical emergency or in the case of a severe fetal abnormality, a person shall not intentionally or knowingly perform or induce an abortion of an unborn human being if the probable gestational age of the unborn human being has been determined to be greater than 15 weeks. Notice in Mississippi, their act, which they passed as law, which this Abortion clinic is now challenging that has reached all the way to the Supreme Court that in the Mississippi Gestational Age Act, they call the thing inside the womb an unborn human being. Respondents, Jackson Women's Health Organization, an abortion clinic, and one of its doctors challenged the act in federal district court, alleging that it violated this court's, talking about the Supreme Court's precedents, establishing a constitutional right to abortion, in particular Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey. The district court granted summary judgment in favor. Now, this is talking about the Fifth Court of Appeals granted summary judgment in favor of respondents talking about the abortion clinic and permanently enjoyed enforcement of the act, reasoning that Mississippi's 15-week restriction on abortion violates this court's, talking about the Supreme Court's, cases forbidding states to ban abortion pre-viability. The Fifth Circuit affirmed, before this court, talking about the Supreme Court, petitioners, that is the state of Mississippi, defended the act, which is their law, on the grounds that Roe and Casey were wrong, decided that were wrongly decided and that the act is constitutional because it satisfies rational basis review. Now, this is going to be one of the key pivot points that the Supreme Court uses to overturn Roe v. Wade. The fact that the Mississippi Act satisfies rational basis review. Rational basis review means in the U.S. constitutional law, rational basis review is the normal standard of review that courts apply when considering constitutional questions including due process or equal protection questions under the Fifth Amendment or Fourteenth Amendment. Now, these are key key amendments that are appealed to throughout this argument over all of these years. It says, held, 
the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. In a nutshell, this is what the Supreme Court's ruling has done. They have overturned Roe and Casey, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. But they clearly report the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. A, the critical question is whether the Constitution, properly understood, confers a right to obtain an abortion. Casey's controlling opinion, now this is a case that was after Roe v. Wade, skipped over that question and reaffirmed Roe solely on the basis of stare decisis. A proper application of stare decisis, however, requires an assessment of the strength of the grounds on which Roe was based. The court therefore turns to the question that the Casey plurality did not consider. So right up front, the Supreme Court of the United States is saying that basically it was sloppy law that was allowed to exist. And so one court case appeals to another that was sloppy and yet used it to make a determination. So first, the court reviews the standard that the court's cases have used to determine whether the 14th Amendment's reference to liberty protects a particular right. The Constitution makes no express reference to a right to obtain an abortion, but several constitutional provisions have been offered as potential homes for an implicit constitutional right. Roe held that the abortion right is part of a right to privacy that springs from the 1st, 4th, 5th, ninth, and 14th Amendments. Isn't that astounding? All of these amendments that they claimed pointed to the abortion right as a part of privacy that springs from the 1st, 4th, 5th, ninth, and 14th Amendments. The Casey court grounded its decision solely on the theory that the right to obtain an abortion is part of the liberty that's, quote-unquote, protected by the 14th Amendment's due process clause. Others have suggested that support can be found in the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, but that theory is squarely foreclosed by the court's precedents. So in other words, the Supreme Court is saying that this theory that they set forth is squarely foreclosed, spoken against by the court's precedents, which established that a state's regulation of abortion is not a sex-based classification and is thus not subject to the heightened scrutiny that applies to such classifications. Rather, regulations and prohibitions of abortion are governed by the same standard of review as other health and safety measures. Number two, next, the court examines whether the right to obtain an abortion is rooted in the nation's history and tradition and whether it is an essential component of ordered liberty. They clearly state here, the court finds that the right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. The underlying theory on which Casey rested, that the 14th Amendment's due process clause provides substantive as well as procedural protection for quote-unquote liberty, has long been controversial. The court's decisions have held that the Due Process Clause protects two categories of substantive rights. That's talking about the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court's decisions have held that the Due Process Clause 
protects two categories of substantive rights, those rights guaranteed by the first eight amendments to the Constitution and those rights deemed fundamental that are not mentioned anywhere in the Constitution. In deciding whether a right falls into either of these categories, the question is whether the right is, quote-unquote, deeply rooted in our history and tradition, end quote, and whether it is essential to this nation's, quote, scheme of ordered liberty. Now, it's interesting that these are two things that they say they use in determining all of these types of things. And we have the present culture that wants to jettison all connection to the past, to history, and to scheme of ordered liberty, but yet the Supreme Court of the United States, according to the laws on the books, that they use two aspects deeply rooted in our history and tradition and the scheme of ordered liberty. The term, quote, liberty, unquote, alone provides little guidance. Thus, historical inquiries are essential whenever the court is asked to recognize a new component of the, quote, unquote, liberty interest protected by the due process clause. In interpreting what is meant by liberty, the court must guard against the natural human tendency to confuse what the 14th Amendment protects with the court's own ardent views about the liberty that Americans should enjoy. For this reason, the court has been reluctant, that's quote-unquote, to recognize rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution. Guided by this reason, guided by the history and tradition that map the essential components of the nation's concept of ordered liberty. Let me repeat that phrase one more time. They're saying, guided by the history and tradition that map the essential components of the nation's concept of ordered liberty. So the Supreme Court, in a major way, is appealing to the history of this country and what has been the fact throughout the history of this country. And then they say the court finds the 14th Amendment clearly does not protect the right to an abortion. Until the latter part of the 20th century, there was no support in American law for a constitutional right to obtain an abortion. No state constitutional provision had recognized such a right until a few years before Roe, no federal or state court had recognized such a right, nor had any scholarly treatise. Indeed, abortion had long been a crime in every single state. At common law, abortion was criminal in at least some stages of pregnancy and was regarded as unlawful and could have very serious consequences at all stages. American law followed the common law until a wave of statutory restrictions in the 1800s expanded criminal liability for abortions. By the time the 14th Amendment was adopted, three-quarters of the states had made abortion a crime at any stage of pregnancy. This consensus endured until the day Roe was decided. Listen to the words of the Supreme Court. This consensus that it was a crime at any stage of pregnancy, endured until the day Roe was decided. Roe either ignored or misstated this history. Now listen to what the Supreme Court is saying. They say that Roe either ignored or misstated this history. 
And Casey, which was a case that came later, declined to reconsider Roe's faulty historical analysis. And Casey declined to reconsider Roe's faulty historical analysis. For the past 50 years, we have seen the taking of millions of lives because of Roe's faulty historical analysis. It goes on, Respondent's argument that this history does not matter flies in the face of the standard the court has applied in determining whether an asserted right that is nowhere mentioned in the Constitution is nevertheless protected by the 14th Amendment. Let me read this again. So the Respondent's argument, in other words, the people trying to say that Mississippi was wrong and that the Roe v. Wade should be upheld, the respondent's argument that this history does not matter flies in the face of the standard the court has applied in determining whether an asserted right that is nowhere mentioned in the Constitution is nevertheless protected by the 14th Amendment. The Solicitor General, now this gets confusing here, because we need to keep in mind that the Solicitor General is an officer of the U.S. Justice Department who represents the federal government in cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. What that means, friend, is that the Solicitor General speaks for the United States government. But keep in mind, and what gets confusing, is that the Supreme Court of the United States is the Supreme Court of the United States government and its people. But yet the Solicitor General is acting on behalf of the U.S. Justice Department, which ultimately the person over the U.S. Justice Department is a political appointee. And so within the Office of Presidency, the U.S. Justice Department is found. Okay, so the Solicitor General here is actually acting as the advocate to continue the support of Roe v. Wade. That's where it gets confusing. The Solicitor General, of course, will usually represent what the current president's views are. The Solicitor General repeats Roe's claim that it is doubtful abortion was ever firmly established as a common law crime, even with respect to the destruction of a quick fetus. Now, what the Solicitor General of the United States, this is coming from the Justice Department, is arguing is that it's doubtful that abortion was ever firmly established as a common law crime, even with respect to the destruction of a quick fetus, which is absolutely ludicrous. Let me define the quick fetus is a fetus that has developed to a stage that it moves within the womb of the mother. But the Supreme Court says, but the great common law authorities, Bracton, Coke, Hale, and Blackstone, all wrote that a post-quickening abortion was a crime. Moreover, many authorities asserted that even a pre-quickening abortion was unlawful and that, as a result, an abortionist was guilty of murder if the woman died from the attempt. The Supreme Court goes on to say that the Solicitor General suggests that history supports an abortion right because of the common law's failure to criminalize abortion before quickening, but the insistence on quickening was not universal. And regardless, the fact that many states in the late 18th and early 19th century did not criminalize Pre-quickening abortions does not mean that anyone thought the states lacked the authority to do so. Instead of seriously pressing the argument that the abortion right itself has deep roots, supporters of Roe and Casey contend that the abortion right is an integral part of a broader, entrenched right. Roe termed this as a right to privacy, and Casey described it as the freedom to make intimate and personal choices that are central to personal dignity and autonomy. 
Ordered liberty sets limits and defines the boundary between competing interests. Roe and Casey each struck a particular balance between the interest of a woman who wants an abortion and the interest of what they termed potential life. But the people of the various states may evaluate those interests differently. The nation's historical understanding of ordered liberty does not prevent the people's elected representatives from deciding how abortion should be regulated. 3. Finally, the court considers whether a right to obtain an abortion is part of a broader entrenched right that is supported by other precedents. The court concludes the right to obtain an abortion cannot be justified as a component of such a right. Attempts to justify abortion through appeals to a broader right to autonomy and to define one's concept of existence prove too much. Those criteria at a high level of generality could license fundamental rights to elicit drug use, prostitution, and the like. In other words, the Supreme Court is saying that if you take this tack, you open up a hornet's nest. Those criteria at a high level of generality could license fundamental rights to elicit drug use, prostitution, and the like. What sharply distinguishes the abortion right from the rights recognized in the cases on which Roe and Casey rely is something that both those decisions acknowledged. Abortion is different because it destroys what Roe termed potential life and what the law challenged in this case calls an unborn human being. So in other words, it's interesting that what the Supreme Court is doing is taking the very tenets of some of the things that Roe and Casey were relying on and flipping it on them to say, you're exactly right. The thing that distinguishes this question from the other areas where these types of broad appeals are made are totally different. Why? Why? Because of the fact that potential life, or as we know, unborn human beings are in the balance. And they make this condemning statement. None of the other decisions cited by Roe and Casey involve the critical moral question posed by abortion. Accordingly, those cases do not support the right to obtain an abortion. And the court's conclusion that the Constitution does not confer such a right does not undermine them in any way. The doctrine of stare decisis, which is the legal principle of determining points in litigation according to precedent, does not counsel continued acceptance of Rowan Casey. Stare decisis plays an important role and protects the interests of those who have taken action in reliance on past decision. Now, this is talking about in other cases. It, quote, reduces incentives for challenging settled precedents, saving parties and courts the expense of endless relitigation, end quote. It, quote, contributes to the actual and perceived integrity of the, ju- the, the judicial process, end quote, and it restrains judicial hubris by respecting the judgment of those who grappled with important questions in the past. But stare decisis is not an inexorable command and, quote, is at its weakest when the court interprets the Constitution. Some of the court's most important constitutional decisions have overruled prior precedents. The court's cases have identified factors that should be considered in deciding when a precedent should be overruled. So the Supreme Court is saying that precedence does not demand the continued acceptance of Roe and Casey. So the Supreme Court gives five factors on why they are saying precedent does not demand that they uphold Roe and Casey. 
Here are the five factors discussed below weigh strongly in favor of overruling Roe and Casey. Number one, the nature of the court's error. Wow. See, no one wants you to hear this. Listen to what the Supreme Court is saying. Number one, the nature of the court's error. Like the infamous decision in Plessy versus Ferguson, Roe was also egregiously wrong. Egregiously wrong. That means in an outstandingly bad way, in a shocking way. Roe was also egregiously wrong and on a collision course with the Constitution from the day it was decided. Listen to what the Supreme Court is saying. They don't want to talk about this in the press. They want to show the women standing in the street screaming that it's going to go back to the coat hanger in the closet. But that is not what the Supreme Court said. Listen to what they said, that Roe was egregiously wrong and on a collision course with the Constitution from the day it was decided. And Casey perpetuated its errors, calling both sides of the natural controversy to resolve their debate, but in doing so, Casey necessarily declared a winning side. Those on the losing side, those who sought to advance the state's interest in fetal life, could no longer seek to persuade their elected representatives to adopt policies consistent with their views. The court short-circuited the democratic process by closing it to the large number of Americans who disagreed with Roe. Now, something that they're going to point to here over and over is the fact that what happened is, is that a judicial system took a legislative act, which is a sep- violation of the separation of powers, and that what they're saying is what everyone all along who has been in opposition, uh, in opposition to Roe v. Wade is that the court legislated from the bench, which is a violation of the separation of powers. Now, the Supreme Court is saying that's exactly what they did and that the court short-circuited the democratic process, in other words, through the legislative branch, by closing it to the large number of Americans who disagreed with Roe. Number two, not only the nature of the court's error, but number two, the quality of the reasoning. Now, friend, you're not going to hear this on all the liberal presses, but the Supreme Court of the United States said that the second reason that they find in favor of overruling Roe and Casey and it and, and not appealing to precedent that it must be maintained is the quality of the reasoning. I've got this in red outline. Without any grounding in the constitutional text, history, or precedent, Roe imposed on the entire country a detailed set of rules for pregnancy divided into trimesters, much like those that one might expect to find in a statute or regulation. See, this is back to legislation. Roe's failure even to note the overwhelming consensus of state laws in effect in 1868 is striking. And what it said about the common law was simply wrong. Let me read this again. Number two, the reason why they're strongly in favor of overruling, in other words, casting aside this concept of precedence that must be maintained, is number two, the quality of the reasoning without any grounding in the constitutional text, history, or precedent Roe imposed on the entire country a detailed set of rules for pregnancy divided into trimesters, much like those one might expect to find in a statute or regulation. Roe's failure even to note the overwhelming consensus of state laws in effect in 1868 is striking, 
and what it said about the common law was simply wrong. Then, after surveying history, the opinion spent many paragraphs conducting the sort of fact-finding that might be undertaken by a legislative committee and did not explain why the sources on which it relied shed light on the meaning of the Constitution. As to precedent, citing a broad array of cases, the court found support for constitutional right of personal privacy. Now, this is talking about the Supreme Court that ratified Roe v. Wade. But Roe conflated, Roe conflated the right to shield information from disclosure and the right to make and implement important personal decisions without governmental interference. None of these decisions involved what is distinctive about abortion its effect on what Roe termed potential life. Ah, so the Supreme Court is saying that none of these decisions that the court previously used uh, just made mention of the fact that, oh, we're talking about life here. I continue on. When the court summarized the basis for the scheme it imposed on the country, it asserted that its rules were consistent with, among other things, the relative weights of the respective interests involved and the demands of the profound problems of the present day. End quote. These are precisely the sort of considerations that legislative bodies often take into account when they draw lines that accommodate competing interests. Again, they are showing and telling on the former court that it acted legislatively and not as judicial. It acted as legislative. These are precisely the sort of considerations that legislative bodies often take into account when they draw lines that accommodate competing interests. The scheme Roe produced looked like legislation, and the court provided the sort of explanation that might be expected from a legislative body. An even more glaring deficiency was Roe's failure to justify the critical distinction it drew between pre- and post-viability abortions, the arbitrary viability line which Casey termed Roe's central rule, has not found much support among philosophers and ethicists who have attempted to justify a right to abortion. The most obvious problem with any such argument is that viability has changed over time and is heavily dependent on factors such as medical advances and the availability of quality medical care that have nothing to do with the characteristics of a fetus. My friend, the Supreme Court is putting down in black and white what you and I have known is that that the present or the Roe v. Wade and the continued support of it denies the science. I continue on. When Casey revisited Roe almost 20 years later, it reaffirmed Roe's central holding but pointedly refrained from endorsing most of its reasoning. The court abandoned any reliance on a privacy right and instead grounded the abortion right entirely on the 14th Amendment's due process clause. Now, friend, keep this in mind. This is something that you have not heard in the past decades, even within the abortion debate and those who say that abortion must be allowed and maintained, that they jettisoned the concept of the privacy right as being a grounds to continue to allow abortion to exist, even within the abortionist's thinking. The court abandoned any reliance on a privacy right and instead grounded the abortion right entirely on the 14th Amendment's due process clause. 
The controlling opinion criticized and rejected Roe's trimester scheme. When Casey revisited Roe almost 20 years later, it reaffirmed Roe's central holding, but pointedly refrained from endorsing most of its reasoning. The court abandoned any reliance on a privacy right and instead grounded the abortion right entirely on the 14th Amendment's due process clause. In other words, even those who were fighting vigorously to defend the right to abortion had jettisoned the concept that the right to privacy was a viable option of argument. The controlling opinion criticized and rejected Roe's trimester scheme and substituted a new and obscure quote-unquote undue burden test. Casey, in short, either refused to reaffirm or rejected important aspects of Roe's analysis, failed to remedy glaring deficiencies in Roe's reasoning, endorsed what it termed Roe's central holding while suggesting that a majority might not have thought it was correct, provided no new support for the abortion right other than Roe's status as precedent and imposed a new test with no firm grounding in constitutional text, history, or precedent. Number three, the workability. Deciding whether a precedent should be overruled depends in part on whether the rule it imposes is workable, that is, whether it can be understood and applied in a consistent and predictable manner. Casey's, quote, undue burden, end quote, test has scored poorly on the workability scale. The Casey plurality tried to put meaning into the, quote, undue burden, end quote, test by setting out three subsidiary rules, but these rules created their own problems. And the difficulty of applying Casey's new rules surfaced in that very case. The experience of the courts of appeals provides further evidence that Casey's line between, and that's, quote, permissible and unconstitutional restrictions, quote, has proved to be impossible to draw with precision, end quote. Casey has generated a long list of circuit conflicts. Friends, what this means is as this garbage has continued, that even the laws that they imposed to try to shore up Roe v. Wade created a massive amount of litigation in the courts, which supposedly their determination with Roe v. Wade was to stop all of this. But the Supreme Court said that Casey has, re- has generated a long list of circuit conflicts. Continued adherence to Casey's unworkable, quote-unquote, undue burden test would undermine, not advance, the, quote, even-handed, predictable, and consistent development of legal principles, end quote. In other words, the unraveling of law that makes sense. Number four, effect on other areas of law. Roe and Casey have led to the distortion of many important but unrelated legal doctrines, and that effect provides further support for overruling those decisions. So we see that this ripping apart of legal common sense, the court is saying has extrapolated over into areas that have nothing to do with Rowan Casey. Reason number five, reliance interests. Overruling Rowan Casey will not upend concrete reliance interests like those that develop in cases involving property and contract rights. In Casey, the controlling opinion conceded that traditional reliance interests were not implicated because getting an abortion is generally, quote, Unplanned activity, end quote, and quote, reproductive planning could take virtually immediate account of any sudden restoration of states' authority to ban abortions, end quote. Instead, the opinion perceived a more intangible form of reliance, namely that, quote, people had organized intimate relationships and made choices that defined their views of themselves and their places in society, 
and reliance on the availability of abortion in the event that contraception should fail, end quote, and that, quote, the ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives. The contending sides in this case make impassioned and conflicting arguments about the effects of the abortion right on the lives of women as well as the status of the fetus. The Casey plurality's speculative attempt to weigh the relative importance of the interest of the fetus and the mother represent a departure from the original constitutional proposition that courts do not substitute their social and economic beliefs for the judgment of legislative bodies. Again, the conflict between legislation and judiciary. The court goes on to say the Solicitor General suggests that overruling Rowan Casey would threaten the protection of other rights under the Due Process Clause. The court emphasizes that this decision concerns the constitutional right to abortion and no other right. The Supreme Court's answer to the Solicitor General's concern is this. The court emphasizes that this decision concerns the constitutional right to abortion and no other right. Nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. Casey identified another concern, namely the danger that the public will perceive a decision overruling a controversial watershed decision, such as Roe, as influenced by political considerations or public opinion. But the court cannot allow its decisions to be affected by such extraneous concerns. A precedent of this court is subject to the usual principles of stare decisis under which adherence to precedent is the norm but not an inexorable command. If the rule were otherwise, erroneous decisions like Plessy would still be the law. The court's job is to interpret the law, apply long-standing principles of stare decisis, and decide this case accordingly. Again, they're appealing to their right to say that Roe v. Wade does not gain the protection of precedent. D, under the court's precedence, rational basis review is the appropriate standard to apply when state abortion regulations undergo constitutional challenge. Given that procuring an abortion is not a fundamental constitutional right, wow, talk about a profound and huge statement. Given that procuring an abortion is not a fundamental constitutional right, it follows that the states may regulate abortion for legitimate reasons, and when such regulations are challenged under the Constitution, courts cannot substitute their social and economic beliefs for the judgment of legislative bodies. That applies even when the laws at issue concern matters of great social significance and moral substance. A law regulating abortion, like other health and welfare laws, is entitled to strong presumption of validity. It must be sustained if there are is a rational basis on which the legislature could have thought that it would serve legitimate state interests. Now, this is a little bit of a slippery slope because what they're saying is it's cast back to the legislative branch. They have the right to make regulations governing abortion according to those states and how they view it, and that a law regulating abortion like other health and welfare laws is entitled to strong presumption of validity it must be sustained if there is a rational basis on which the legislature could have thought that it would serve legislative, legitimate state interests. Then the Supreme Court makes this statement. Mississippi's Gestational Age Act is supported by the Mississippi legislature's specific findings 
which include the state's asserted interest in protecting the life of the unborn. These legitimate interests provide a rational basis for the Gestational Age Act, and it follows that respondents' constitutional challenge must fail. Abortion presents a profound moral question. The Constitution does not prohibit the citizens of each state from regulating or prohibiting abortion. Roe and Casey arrogated that authority. The court overrules those decisions and returns that authority to the people and their elected representatives. So they reversed and remanded. Dear friend, it's a start. It tells us this is how serious the battle is. It's taken 50 years to overturn sloppy legislative decrees from the judicial branch. And so it's not over with, but I tell you what, the powers of the enemy are, are hurting right now because they have been overturned in this regard. And so, dear friend, we need to continue to pray. We need to praise God for those who have taken the, the decades and years that it has taken and the money to continue to hammer home the truths that finally have been revealed in this Supreme Court document. We need to thank God for that. But friend, we need to continue to pray because this is just the beginning of the unraveling of the power and the grip of evil over our nation and over our world. Dear friend, God wants us to have a successful life. He wants you and I to enjoy the peace that passes understanding. And to do that, we have to have the basis of civilization that is for us and not against us. Friend, this is a major victory in the spiritual realm. The forces of evil are being pushed back. Is it an ultimate victory? Absolutely not, because states are going to continue to be able to allow to commit abortion and have babies' lives taken. And so, dear friend, we've got to continue to pray. We need to celebrate life, celebrate the victory, pray for women who have been victimized by abortion. Dear friend, I want to remind you that it is a sin that is committed by the woman. And so don't you know that Satan is dancing a jig because of all the women who are coming under the judgment of Almighty God and the chastisement of Almighty God for taking the life of the unborn. And the evil men of this world sit back and laugh because it is the woman who is to bear the brunt of this sin. What a tragedy. What an abuse. For all of the women who claim abuse, my friend, this is the ultimate abuse against women in the world, is that they are the ones who bear the brunt. And so my heart goes out for any person who has committed an abortion. And I want to say to you, if you have had an abortion, it is not the unpardonable sin. If you will ask God to forgive you for this terrible wrong that you've done, he will forgive you and he will give you a clean heart in regards to this. And you will be lifted up and you will be taken up out of the oppression and the mental anguish that you have suffered under ever since you committed that act. And so I want to say to you, Christ is willing to forgive, but you have to act and you have to repent. Become an ambassador for the truth. Stand up for what is right, and God will restore and God will heal. And friend, we need to continue to pray for the states who are going to go now into hyperdrive to make sure that a woman will continue such atrocities. The corporations that are already coming forward to say that they will pay for the woman to move and fly to wherever they need to go to have this terrible thing done. Let's continue to pray. I celebrate this victory in Jesus Christ today. And with that, I bid you peace.